We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It was already dark one night when my phone rang. I didn't recognize the number on my display. There was a man with a deep voice on the other end of the line. He jumped right in without introducing himself. He didn't even say hello. So you want to know about Larry, huh? Said the man on the other end of the line. He blurted this out like a threat. His tone seemed scornful, daring even. I was already a little jumpy, having had that brief but unsettling call with Thomas Weaver just a few hours prior. I froze for a second. Then I asked, who is this, please? He gave me a first name and continued. You want to know about Larry, right? Larry is not here. It turns out the caller was given my number by someone I spoke to from Walmart. He was a close friend of Larry's. He called me to talk about what he thinks happened to him. I exhaled. He agreed to be interviewed as long as I didn't identify him by his name. He wants to be called John Doe. From the Labyrinth and Case File Presents, I'm Octavia McHenry. If Larry was on this planet, I would be able to find him or I would be able to detect him. I can't. I've tried. I tried every day for two weeks. That's uncommon. That is highly uncommon. I quickly became disappointed when I realized that John believes Larry was abducted by aliens. John also says that he's a medium. Generally, when people pass away, I can make contact with them. It may take a day, it may take a week, it may take two weeks. But generally, I can, I can pick them up sooner or later, I'll, I'll find them. Or they'll find me. In Larry's case, I haven't been able to do that. John says he not only believes in Bigfoot, but he's seen it with his own eyes. Let's just say he was killed by a Bigfoot. He wouldn't be, he would still be here. You understand what I'm saying? He would be, he would be on this planet. What have they found with Larry? Nothing. Not one single thing. I contacted that sheriff down there probably a hundred times. He eventually blocked my number. What chicken shit is that? In all seriousness, though, John is worried about his friend. And he expressed his distress over the case being closed so quickly and Larry declared dead within months. He also told me that he was worried that the sheriff's office never truly looked for him. He was a good friend of mine, worked at Walmart for many, many years. Larry was not like a white hot ball of fire. He was 
really laid back, really easy going. You know, he, he, if you asked him a question, the guy was fairly intelligent about, about a number of things. It bugs me because he was a, a unique kind of character, man. He really was. Did he ever seem depressed or suicidal, I asked? Very? No, hell no. Always willing to jump in, always willing to help. Never seen that man. I've seen him get mad a few times at customers, but as far as anything like that goes, never, huh? No way, not Larry. I'd stake my life on it. John says he didn't choose to be a medium, but he can't help it. God decided to wave his hand over my head and say, well, I think we're going to create this dumbass right here to do this. And I unfortunately got stuck with this. Okay. Because I really don't want to do it. I really don't even like doing it. I'm getting too old for this shit. Well, I really appreciate, I really appreciate you calling me. I really do. Um, I need you, I need you, I need you to sit down and start looking at some of the stuff that these people have caught on films and then you make up your own mind. I can't, I, I can't make a believer out of you. You have to see some of the stuff well, I, yourself. I did read, I did read the 411 book. Missing 411. It's a series of books by cryptozoologist David Paulides. In these books, Paulides chronicles mysterious, usually unsolved disappearances from national parks, forests, and public lands across North America. The idea behind it is that paranormal activity is to blame for many of these disappearances. You see, an acquaintance who knew I was interested in missing person cases lent me the book. And because the thesis of a Bigfoot creature abducting people is never stated but only implied, it took me a handful of pages before I even picked up on the supernatural undertones. But while researching this story, I found that it's fairly common in forums, blogs, and posts where cases of people missing from parks and forests are the subject of discussion to find comments by followers of David Paulides. The author has a huge online following, and I came to understand that John Doe is just one of many. In the article, How America's National Parks Became Hotbeds of Paranormal Activity, published on Vice, journalist Sarah Emerson writes that the bedrock of Paulides implied thesis is that something sinister, even supernatural, is happening to missing persons inside of national parks. But he allows readers to reach those conclusions on their own. Politis knows what's going on. I like the guy, I do, but he's got no balls. He won't come out and say it. Which, according to comments from some of his online followers, could mean Politis himself doesn't really believe there to be anything supernatural behind these disappearances, but knows that maintaining it will continue to sell books and event tickets. There's been hundreds of people missing out of the Grand Canyon. You will never know the exact amount because that's the park, that's a, the park's little secret. You know, how is it that, how is it that these people disappear like that without a trace? I'm a firm believer those things are real and there's something out there that we don't understand. We don't. The truth is, there are countless ways in which a person could get injured or die in the wilderness. And because public lands make up approximately 28% of all land in the United States, statistically, it makes sense for so many people to go missing from such places. And the Grand Canyon is one of the most visited parks in the United States, with more than 5 million people visiting each year, many of whom grossly underestimate how difficult the trails are or just how hot it gets and how much water they need to bring. Data collected by the National Park Service for 2017 shows a total of 4,194 reported search and rescue incidents across all of U.S. public lands and national parks. 
Of those search and rescue missions, approximately 1,500 resulted in finding the missing party ill or injured. The data for that year shows that 423 people remain unfounded. That's about 10%. But keep in mind that some people may have been found and not recorded. And crimes happen in public lands just like they do anywhere else. I spoke to Special Agent Christopher Smith of the Investigative Services Branch. That's the investigative arm of the National Park Service. They're known as the FBI of the Park Service. So ISB, we're the special agents in the National Park Service that work uh, on criminal investigations primarily at the felony level that occur in national parks. Agent Smith is a special agent in charge of operations, meaning he manages the operations across the United States. I also spoke with Special Agent Marshall Anderson. He works out of the Tucson office. A long time ago when I was in academy, I heard it put this way that our job is to protect the park from the people, protect the people from the park, and protect people from people. As special agents or criminal investigators in the National Park Service, uh, we're non-uniformed, we wear plain clothes, we drive unmarked vehicles. And the way that it, I think, kind of translates best is, is basically we're like detectives in a police department. Both Special Agent Smith and Special Agent Anderson have been stationed at Grand Canyon National Park at some point in their career. And they're both very familiar with Southeast Arizona and other parks along the U.S.-Mexico border. Here's Agent Smith. Certain national parks are more um, prone to certain types of crime, right? So you have Grand Canyon or Yosemite, a place where there is a large resident population. There's a, you know, there's a school, there's banks, there's grocery stores, post office. It's just like a small town. And so they're obviously prone to just your generic people crime. Special Agent Anderson added. And up there, uh, every year, the vast majority of cases that we're working out of the Grand Canyon are, you know, violent physical assaults, sexual assaults, and then a lot of crimes against children. I mean, I'm just using the Grand Canyon as an example because they have a large year-round population, I think 4,000 year-round residents. So, uh, you know, they they bring, just as any small town, there's going to be problems. Um, But also, and that's not just from the residents, if you're a jerk at home, you're a jerk on vacation. You know, people don't just put pause on their criminal activities because they're on vacation. But people like Paulides exploit mysterious missing person cases. When the circumstances of a disappearance seem inexplicable, read frustrating, many will gravitate towards paranormal explanations. I see it as a coping mechanism. That being said, David Paulides did bring attention to something alarming, that the National Park Service hasn't been keeping track of how many people have disappeared across its lands. In his documentary, Missing 411, Paulides elicited a disconcerting answer from the Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar, when he asked about how many people had disappeared from national parks. Mr. Salazar said that he did not recall. In her story for Vice, Sarah Emerson made note of this uncomfortable exchange and attempted to glean more information on the topic through a series of FOIA requests and interviews. Not only did she confirm that the number of missing persons isn't something that the Park Service keeps track of, but she was also told how cumbersome, inefficient, and unreliable their database is. According to Lori Sonken, a former senior staff member of the Department of the Interior, quote, there is no comprehensive roster of all persons who have gone missing across the national park system, end quote. 
This is in part due to the fact that these cases are often investigated across various agencies like county sheriff departments or municipal police. Sunken said that the number of people who have vanished on public lands could range in the, quote, hundreds or more, end quote. To make things more complicated, there are other agencies that have jurisdiction on public lands outside of the National Park Service. In national forests, for instance, where Jeanette and Larry disappeared from, it's the U.S. Forest Service. While the Park Service is under the Department of Interior, the Forest Service is managed by the Department of Agriculture. And even within national parks, sometimes the Park Service manages the case, and sometimes they don't. Oftentimes, it ends up being local law enforcement, like a sheriff's office in most rural areas. It all depends on what kind of jurisdiction a specific park falls under. There's three main jurisdiction types that um, are present in national parks, and that's uh, proprietary jurisdiction, concurrent jurisdiction, or exclusive jurisdiction. So depending on the jurisdiction type of the particular piece of land of that particular park, that helps determine who, which uh, law enforcement agency will have the primary responsibility for investigating felonies such as missing persons. Essentially, proprietary means the state uh, or local law enforcement agencies take the lead on most people crimes. Concurrent means the state retains full authority to investigate, but so does the federal government. So National Park Service special agents can investigate all those people crimes. So it's both, both groups has, have equal uh, investigative um, standing, if you will. And then the third type, exclusive federal jurisdiction, they're, the county, the local uh, sheriffs, the police departments, the state police, they don't have jurisdiction on that land. It's similar to, say, a military base. And so the only entities that could investigate those, um, those offenses that occur in exclusive jurisdiction parks are our federal agents. Typically, it's us. This episode is going to be a little longer than the others. I'm going to be exploring some alternatives as to how Jeanette and Larry could have disappeared. Primarily, the smuggling theory. That is, whether Jeanette and Larry could have run into an illegal drug or alien smuggling operation and been at the wrong place at the wrong time. And secondly, the possibility that they crossed paths with a serial killer. To illustrate the drug smuggling explanation, I've chosen a case from 1980 that happened right in the Chiricahuas. I'm going to delve into that before going back to those theories. If you've been paying attention to missing person cases involving national parks, you may have heard of a famous case that took place right in the Chiricahua Mountains. This one happened at Chiricahua National Monument, 15 miles away from Russell Park, where Jeanette and Larry were last seen. That would be about 45 minutes by car. Ranger Paul Fugate of the National Park Service disappeared on January 13, 1980, while on duty at Chiricahua National Monument. This 40-year-old mystery still gains nationwide attention. Paul was 41. He was a ranger naturalist. That day, he had been working inside the monument's visitor center. Earlier that morning, he had escorted visitors with a shuttle up to the top of a peak called Westside Point so that they could hike back down and enjoy the view in the magnificent rock formations. But for the rest of the day, he'd be stuck inside, writing a report for the National Park Service. It was January, but it was a beautiful day in the Chiricahua Mountains, sunny and warm. Paul and the other employee working at the visitor center, a girl named Donna, were complaining that they were stuck inside. Paul made her a deal. He said, 
Donna, you go take a walk this morning while I cover for you, and in the afternoon, you can do the same for me. Donna came back, they had lunch, and Paul finished writing his report. He teased Donna that she'd have to type it up. Donna teased him back, saying that she was busy and he could type it up himself. Finally, it was Paul's turn to head out for a hike. He turned to the other employee and said, I'm going to go walk the trails. If I'm not back by 4.30, which was closing time, go ahead and lock up. And he grabbed his jacket and left his radio and walked out. And he was never seen again. That's Special Agent Anderson. At present, he's the case agent on the Fugate disappearance. But initially, the investigation was led by the sheriff's office. In fact, the investigative services branch didn't even exist at the time Paul disappeared. It wasn't created until 2003. A few years ago, the ISB took over the investigation as part of its cold case initiative. The investigation was dusted off in hopes that a fresh set of eyes might bring new leads. The Park Service also tripled the reward for information on the case, bringing it to $60,000. But the case is so cold that when Paul disappeared, Agent Anderson wasn't even born yet. Let me, how how do I put this? This case has more twists and turns than the Blue Ridge Parkway, right? I mean, there's there's stuff that, that popped up on the radar and we chased it down and then other names and other names. And it, it's really weird stuff. So at about 2 p.m. that day, Paul left the building to go hike a trail. He was wearing the standard winter uniform, a long-sleeve National Park Service shirt with a gold-collared ranger badge, khaki work jeans, and hiking boots. He wasn't carrying a gun. He typically didn't. Paul had a wife. Her name is Dodie. But they were living apart at the time. She had stayed behind at their home in Tucson to pursue her career while Paul was working in the Chiricahuas. They'd see one another mostly on weekends. Dodie had planned to move out there with him by that summer. Despite the distance, Dodie and Paul had a deep connection. Paul and I were, were uh, very, very close. You know, we were the type of people who could argue and have a good time doing it, and at the same time could finish each other's sentences. In order to piece together the rest of the story, I'm going to be relying partly on the interviews with Paul's widow, Dodie, and with Agent Anderson, as well as the Phoenix New Times story by investigative journalist Paul Rubin from 1988. Like I was saying, Paul was married, but his life had become somewhat complicated. He had been having an affair with another Park Service employee, Diane, on and off for over a year. Dodie said she learned of the liaison, but tolerated it, thinking her husband of 16 years was just having a fling. But it didn't end. In fact, it was Diane who raised the alarm about Paul missing later that day. She showed up at his cabin at 5.45, where they had agreed to meet, but he wasn't there. It was already dark by then. She walked over to his neighbor's cabin to see if they'd seen him. Then she walked back to Paul's cabin to double-check whether he'd changed out of his uniform. If Paul had come home after his hike, he would have changed out of his uniform right away, because that was usually the first thing he did when he walked in. But he hadn't, which indicated to her that he'd never come home from his afternoon hike. From what she could see, Paul left everything behind, including cash, his beloved 1955 Chevy, his collection of firearms and cameras, and other valuables. Diane knew that something wasn't right. Within the hour, the park superintendent set up two search parties. They looked and called his name in all directions until about 3.30 in the morning, but there was no trace of Paul anywhere. 
One of the places they searched is an area called Faraway Ranch. Faraway Ranch is a historic property adjacent to Chiricahua National Monument that the federal government had recently acquired to make it part of the park. Built by a couple of Swedish immigrants about 100 years earlier, it stayed in the family and was run as a guest ranch until about the 1970s. Around that time, it was no longer inhabited, as the person running it had moved into a nursing home. In 1979, the Park Service acquired it, but aside from a few signs here and there, it didn't appear as if it was federal property yet. A couple of weeks before disappearing, Paul had told Dodie and a co-worker that he saw some people doing shady business at Faraway Ranch, probably selling dope. Paul and I had been uh, talking on uh, like Thursday before he went back down to the park. And I told him that about two weeks before, some friends of ours got married uh, down by the park. And uh, I had seen some people fiddling around uh, one of the, uh, the park uh, facilities that shouldn't have been down there at the time. And uh, we were talking about the fact that that area needed better protection. And in fact, it would appear as if Paul headed to Faraway Ranch that day. From the visitor center, that would have been about an hour walk through forest and meadow. And he walks down too far away to see if people were fiddling around down there. And apparently people were. And it's probable that he uh, he recognized at least one of the people. And uh, oh, he uh, encountered some people doing something they shouldn't have done. And there he was, you know, with a hiding uniform and a badge. A uniform and a badge. It's worth mentioning at this point, and you'll see why later on, that Paul Fugate was a non-law enforcement employee at the Park Service. That's one of the things that's unique about the National Park Service, that most of their employees are referred to as rangers, which can be kind of confusing. Add to that the fact that up until the late 90s, the badges for law enforcement employees versus the rest of the park staff looked the same. And the reason that we did the badges different was so that you could tell the difference between a law enforcement ranger and right. a non-law enforcement ranger. Right. Um, right, right. Which, I mean, still, you know, same same uniform, same everything. It's just, you know, a duty belt and a larger badge. So not, not too many people pick up on it. And that's really where a lot of confusion came from with the, the Paul Fugate case was people did think that he was a law enforcement ranger when, in fact, he wasn't. But Paul reportedly hated his uniform. Like I mentioned, he used to change right out of it after work each day. He was known as somewhat of a nonconformist. He wore long hair, he had a mustache, and that was a big deal in the 1970s, working for a semi-military federal agency. In 1971, Paul was fired because he didn't get along with his boss and for pushing the boundaries. But after a long battle, in 1976, Paul was reinstated and returned to his post in the Chiricahuas. Because of this background, some people believed Paul had decided to simply walk off the job. And there's more. Two days prior to disappearing, Paul had learned that his girlfriend, Diane, may have been pregnant. She told Paul that she'd missed her period for a few months. But what was puzzling is that he told her that he'd had a vasectomy. Still, she knew that she hadn't been with anybody else. Paul didn't seem so concerned. He had a wait-and-see attitude. Did Paul secretly panic and decide to skip town right before his house of cards was about to collapse? Had he decided that the park service was too conservative for him and just walked away? There's clues suggesting otherwise. 
At around 4.15 the day Paul disappeared, a witness reported seeing Paul sitting between two men in the front seat of a Ford pickup truck. Dick Horton, a park service worker and retired cop, and his wife Joy knew Paul well. They were practically neighbors. They had been driving on the road that leads to the park, and Dick remembered that this pickup truck was headed in the opposite direction, towards Wilcox. Paul's posture was strange. He seemed sort of slumped in between the other two. And he wasn't wearing his glasses. He'd never seen Paul without his glasses before. And remember Faraway Ranch, where Paul is believed to have gone hiking that day? We did interview a guy last year who still works at the park as kind of like custodial staff. And he uh, recalled signs of a struggle. Uh, You know, the gouges in the dirt. That was Detective Sergeant Tal Parker with the Sheriff's Office, talking about the Fugate investigation, which he was also involved in. Sergeant Parker told me that while looking for clues and trying to retrace Paul's last known steps, one of the park employees at the time recalled seeing signs that a struggle had taken place at Faraway Ranch. There was a disturbance in the ground, and next to the tire tracks, there was a bag of peanut brittle. That past Christmas, the wife of the superintendent had made a batch of peanut brittle for each staff member and handed it to them in separate baggies. The ranger's interpretation was that there had been some type of scuffle. Had Paul taken his peanut brittle with him on that hike to Faraway Ranch? Maybe something happened to him while he was holding on to that bag. We knew at the time that he got too far away and that there were spin-out tracks. And so we figured that somebody... He'd come across somebody who he shouldn't have. That was our first feeling is uh, he uh, he had met someone that he did not expect to meet who was doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Did Paul end up walking to Faraway Ranch and stumble into a drug deal? After all, he had said that he saw some shady people over there. And even though Paul liked smoking pot on occasion, he wasn't on board with people selling drugs in his park. And then this happened. This is Special Agent Anderson again. Essentially, a, an individual who was living in Tucson at the time, he up and left town um, about uh, three months after Paul went missing. And he went back home to Wisconsin and was at a party uh, drinking and started telling everybody that the reason he left Tucson was because he killed, he killed a cop and he buried him in the desert, and he had to leave. That man was 19-year-old Gerald Bullmeister, also known as Jerry. He was working in Tucson as a mechanic at the time Paul disappeared. And one day, he abruptly left and went back to Wisconsin, bragging that he had killed a cop. Remember, Paul Fugate wore a uniform, and he may have been mistaken for a law enforcement officer. A half dozen people reported that Jerry Bowmeister told them some variation of that story. He talked about hauling a body into the Arizona desert and dumping it there. The tips were brought to law enforcement in Wisconsin, and Detective Mike Erickson of Racine County Sheriff's Department eventually called the authorities in Arizona to inquire whether they were missing an officer. And that's how a connection between Paul Fugate and Jerry Bowmeister was established. In July 1983, based on those new leads, a Cochise County Sheriff's official announced that Paul had been murdered and the arrest of more than one person was imminent. However, no one has ever been charged. That was the closest law enforcement ever got to cracking the case open. The problem was they were never able to prove a connection between Bollmeister and Paul Fugate. 
Somehow, years later, detectives were able to convince Bomeister to return to Arizona for an interview, but he wouldn't confess to anything incriminating, even though they felt that he really wanted to get something off his chest. And he even agreed to take a polygraph, which he failed. The polygrapher said in late 1985 that he'd stake his reputation on the fact that Bomeister killed Paul Fugate or participated in the murder in some way. But polygraphs aren't admissible in court, and they had no solid evidence to arrest him. Bomeister was said to have a violent streak when drinking, but apparently was also prone to exaggeration. He even told his girlfriend, whom he later married, that he killed a cop in Arizona and the body would never be found. But she didn't believe him. And then there's another piece to this puzzle, which might or might not fit with the rest. It has to do with a guy named Raymond Peabody. Back in the day when Paul went missing, Peabody was growing cannabis right outside his trailer in Alfreda, not far from Chiricahua National Monument. Raymond Peabody, 42 at the time, was convicted for cultivating cannabis, but never showed up for sentencing. Apparently, on his property, they also found other drugs, prescription-type pills in plain unmarked bags. Peabody was sentenced in absentia to two to three years in prison, but he never did his time. His name only popped up in the Fugate investigation because in 1983, a Cochise County Sheriff's Office employee was looking into outstanding warrants. So they searched for him and found out that he was living in New York State under a false name. He was arrested and extradited back to Arizona to serve his sentence. And this guy supposedly had connections to a uh, mob or, you know, criminal enterprise outfit out of Syracuse, New York. And, you know, you would you look at that and you just kind of shake your head and say, well, that's, you know, whatever. But the interesting thing is that when he got arrested, he was on the lam, he got arrested, and he was extradited back to Arizona on his cultivation charges. Well, the detectives who were working the case sat down with him and they said, Raymond, if you will tell us what happened to Paul Fugate, we will, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of your sentence. You will be released on probation. Um, you won't have to serve any time for, you know, your your cultivation charges if you'll just tell us what happened to Paul Fugate. This this guy Raymond Peabody looked at him and said, "Well, I'm looking at three years probably for cultivation, so let's cut that in half and say a year and a half." Now nah, I'll just do my time. Wow. I mean, who says that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, does that mean that he just was being defiant to law enforcement because he didn't like cops? Or does that mean that he really knew something? Well, nobody but, wants to trade in that much time because of, you know, out of principle. I mean, not most people anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. 
They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. So pretty much, once in Arizona State Prison, Peabody was told that all they cared about was to find out what happened to Paul. But Peabody chose to do his time instead. He was released in 1985. But, like I said, unfortunately, he's passed away. So okay. I can't get any answers out of him. The link between Raymond Peabody and Paul wasn't difficult to establish. Peabody's live-in girlfriend, Gail Shaw, was a Park Service employee and a friend of Paul's. They re-interviewed Paul's wife, Dodie, and she remembered that Paul once told her he had picked up his girlfriend, Diane, at Peabody's home in Elfrida. Diane says she vaguely recalls spending time there, too. Detectives started to believe that Raymond Peabody was a central figure in Paul's disappearance. According to Peabody's one-time girlfriend, Gil Shaw, about a month before Paul disappeared, Peabody told her that he was back in Arizona to make a large deal. She recalls that he was staying in an abandoned cabin in Pinery Canyon, a wooded area just a few miles from Faraway Ranch. But at the end of the day, they couldn't make a clear connection between Peabody and Jerry Bowmeister. Only that another ex-girlfriend of Peabody's recognized Bowmeister as being one of his associates. And I thought it was interesting that Jerry Bowmeister once told someone he'd been paid by somebody to dump a body in the desert. Um, that was one of the, the theories with that Raymond Peabody guy, was that he was bringing drugs from Mexico up into southeast Arizona and then transporting or setting up the, the transport for it back to the northeast. You know, back in the days when people actually cared about Mexican, Mexican ditch weed. But, you know, that, that's, that's a theory. I don't have anything to say that that didn't happen, but I don't have anything to say that it did happen. Had Paul been killed after stumbling into a drug smuggling operation? Did Jerry Bollmeister kill Paul Fugate and dispose of his body on behalf of dope grower Raymond Peabody? We'll probably never know. Over the years, there have been numerous leads. The ones I talked about are just some of the most promising, but none of them ever panned out. I, I tell you, it is, I mean, it, it's a fascinating case and it's equally as frustrating because, you know, just with, with any any cold case, um, you know, people pass away, people's memories fade, um, stories change. It's really difficult to, I mean, even some of these people, when I call them out and I've, I've interviewed them and said, hey, this is what you said to detectives at the time. And they'll turn around and go, no, I never said that. Or, well, maybe that's what I said, but, but I don't remember it that way. You know, so it, it, it's really, really frustrating. But at the end of the day, the facts and evidence for this case, uh, I've got a handful, right? A, a couple, a couple little little things of physical evidence, a couple little things that that are considered, you know, solid facts. But I have a mountain of speculation. I mean, every almost every interview that I've done has negated another interview. You know, when I talk to somebody and they say, this is absolutely the way that I remember it, and this is what I think happened, and then I'll go do another interview with someone else, and I'll go, here's why that couldn't be true. Okay. <laughs> you know? So mm -hmm. that's, I mean, uh, uh, without without using a whole bunch of swear words, that, that's, that gets you kind of into my frustration with the case, is that <laughs> there just, there really isn't, 
there just isn't a whole lot of actual physical evidence to go off of. And in any criminal investigation, it's the facts and the evidence that leads you to the conclusion, right? And unfortunately, I think that a lot of, of what has happened with this case over time is that people have plugged in a conclusion and then seen if the facts can get them there. And that's what I'm trying to untangle after 40 years. Eight years after his disappearance, Paul Fugate was presumed dead. But there's no way to know where his body could be. The park sprawls over 12,000 acres and has a complex terrain with many canyons. And especially if, like Dick Horton's memory suggests, Paul was driven away from the Chiricahuas. He could be buried anywhere. If this was a homicide, it's a no-body homicide. We have no crime scene. We have no body. We have no physical evidence to support that. So if you had to speculate, what do you think happened? You know, it depends on which day you ask me. There's days when I say, yeah, it makes total sense that that he was probably assaulted and killed and his body is somewhere in southeast Arizona. And, and, and I, I believe that. There are random crimes and there are random homicides. But, you know, statistically, usually mm-hmm. it's, it's somebody that, that you know and there's a reason for it, whether that be, you know, a crime of passion, uh, anger, money, um, you know, something like that. But so there, there's days when I look at it and I say, you know, this, something happened to this guy. And, and what makes me lean towards either a homicide or the fact that he is dead is just that it's really difficult to fake your own disappearance and keep that going for a long time. Um, people do it, but it, it's actually really difficult. But so the fact that Paul's never reached out to his family. He has never reached out to his wife. He's never reached out to his brothers and sisters. His mother passed away never knowing what happened to her son. And from the interviews that I've done, people say that that there's no way that Paul would be that cold-hearted to not reach out and, and let his mother know that he was okay. But there's also days when I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if he, if, if he you know, shows up as a greeter at Walmart. I mean, I know he'd be in his 80s now, but I mean, it, you know, weirder stuff has happened. But, you know, at really at the end of the day, Paul Fugate was an employee. He was a, a, a national park ranger. And he was on the job and he never came home. So regardless of whether it was, you know, something super criminal or whether it was a misadventure or if it was he's faking his own death and disappearance, we still need to know. But Dodie never doubted that Paul died on that day. I think that he just saw the wrong people and uh, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. She has never gotten over her husband's disappearance, and to this day, she still gets very emotional when talking about him. I asked if she ever remarried, and she told me, no, I was married to the person I needed to be married to, and I never found anyone else I wanted to do that with. After Paul disappeared, she stayed in Tucson a while. She didn't know where to go. The, the problem with somebody disappearing is you don't know what to do. And in my case, you don't know if somebody's alive or dead. And uh, so 
you don't go anywhere as a, as a rule because you're waiting to see what's going to happen. If, if I moved away and Paul was still alive, then where would he find me? It's, it's sort of a, a thing where you're in limbo for the rest of your life. That's what it goes down to. Back at his cabin in the Chiricahuas, Paul had a friend who was a javelina, a pig-like animal found in the Southwest. He called her Lone Pig. He would throw apples to Lone Pig, and she'd catch them in midair like a frisbee. At one point, Dodie became so desperate for answers that she even chased a javelina through the woods to see if it might lead her to Paul. Eventually, a doctor told her it'd be better for her health if she moved somewhere cooler. Dodie went to New Mexico, where she worked for the state as an archaeologist, until she retired. She had hoped to find answers for Paul's mother one day, but his mother died in 2008. The woman Paul was having an affair with, Diane, had an abortion two weeks after Paul disappeared. To this day, nobody has come forward to collect the $60,000 in reward money. Somebody knows the truth, yet this reward is not appealing enough for them to come forward. Possibly because the only people who know are people who wouldn't gain anything from the truth being told. Maybe because they are the people responsible for Paul's disappearance. Here's Special Agent Smith. It definitely keeps agents up at night. It's how do I figure out how to get this, the person that knows this information to come forward that can, you know, potentially, you know, you can never undo the harm that's caused by these events, but at least provide some closure to these families that, you know, go to bed every night wondering if their loved one is still alive somewhere or died a horrific death and is buried in the woods somewhere or whatever, you know, it's the not knowing um, takes a tremendous toll on the families of these folks, their families and loved ones. The Chiricahuas are a rough area. They always have been. Paul did not think of it as being dangerous at all, which, uh, as it turned out, was a mistake. The Chiricahua Mountains in the wilderness sprawl out across southeastern Arizona, coated in dense ponderosa pines and Douglas fir. The unique rock formations of the National Monument are something of rare splendor. Pillars of stone stacked and balancing impossibly, reaching skyward. These mountains are home to an incredibly diverse range of plants and animals. Coyotes, rattlesnakes, and roadrunners in the grasslands, mountain lions, falcons, and black bears in the high country. Although on average, the mountain range gets just under 20 inches of rainfall each year, the bulk of that comes all at once in the robust thunderstorms of our summer monsoon season. Flash floods are not unusual at that time of the year, and high-pressure systems can cause wind speeds as high as 60 miles an hour. The region is named for Chiricahua Apache, who occupied the area and were led by Cochise, for whom the county is named. Cochise fought against Mexican and U.S. forces in defense of his people, after Cochise's death, the legendary Geronimo assumed the fight. Thousands of Apaches have been forcibly removed from their homeland and relocated to reservations. Geronimo spurred revolt, leading small armies in raids against U.S. military forces. His band drew intense pursuit, which they evaded for months before surrendering in 1884, escaping and then surrendering for a final time at Skeleton Canyon in 1886. Throughout their campaign, however, the abundant landscape of the Chiricahuas would serve to keep them hidden. The Apache were not the last people to recognize how well one could stay hidden in the Chiricahuas. The term rustler refers to a person who steals livestock. Rustler Park, from where Jeanette and Larry vanished, 
is so named because it was where rustlers could hide their stolen cattle. Its usefulness has evolved in more recent times. With its proximity to the border, drug smugglers and human traffickers take advantage of its shadows and vistas alike, utilizing peaks as lookout towers to watch border patrol activity. In 2013, Farway Ranch, where Paul Fugate disappeared from, was the scene of another very violent assault. Here's Sergeant Parker again. He used a rock about this big, uh, and he hit her in the head multiple times. He, he turned the large rock into pieces about that big. A drug runner named Gil Gaxiola attacked National Park Service worker Karen Gonzalez while she was cleaning the facilities at Farway Ranch, leaving her for dead. What do you think was the motive? He wanted the vehicle. He had been part of a group of six that uh, uh, called mules. You know, they carried the double bundles on their back. Uh, I think he got separated from his group, made his way to the Chiricahua National Monument, and he wanted the vehicle to get back to Mexico. Uh, the stolen vehicle, the government vehicle, was found at the 10th Street Park in Douglas that night. And then he was apprehended down next to the border that next morning. So, Gaxiola was captured on camera as part of a group that was moving cannabis across the border. The following day, he was arrested by Border Patrol for an immigration-related charge and eventually convicted of first-degree attempted murder, armed robbery, assault, kidnapping, and theft. Karen Gonzalez suffered long-term consequences and a serious brain injury. I set out to understand how dangerous the Chiricahua Mountains really are. The answer isn't straightforward and a lot of the information I have is contradictory. According to the Department of Justice website, cross-border drug trafficking organizations commonly use national parks, monuments, and national forests, as well as tribal lands located along the U.S.-Mexico border to smuggle illicit drugs through the Tucson area. Tucson is both a regional and national distribution center because of its proximity to Mexico and to major east-west interstate highways. Drug trafficking in Arizona got so bad that it was identified as a designated high-intensity drug trafficking area in 1990, and a program was set up, funded by the Office of National Drug Control Policy, to target the problem. According to the Arizona HIDTA, individuals carrying backpack loads up to 100 pounds smuggle most drugs, particularly cannabis, across the Arizona-Mexico border. And this area in Arizona is one of the primary arrival zones for cannabis entering the United States from Mexico, according to the Department of Justice. The backpackers hike to remote, predetermined locations and either transfer the backpacks to a waiting trafficker or hide them for later retrieval. The organization released a drug market analysis report in 2010 saying the smuggling mainly centered around cannabis, methamphetamines, and, to a lesser extent, controlled prescription drugs and heroin. Coronado National Forest has recently joined other agencies near the border in posting signs that warn the public of the risk of running into drug trafficking activity and other illicit operations. Here's Special Agent Anderson. What makes it kind of stand out is that its proximity of the border just lends, lends itself to some of that, that, those issues that are associated. And of course, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, human trafficking, human smuggling, and drug smuggling, contraband smuggling, those, those types of things. Um, that part doesn't have as severe a problem as some of the other parks that are right along the border, but it's still there. I mean, you know, there's, there, that's why 
our partner agencies like Border Patrol have such a, a high presence in the area is because there's cross-border illegal activity. That being said, it's very unlikely for private citizens to run into illegal border-related activity. These groups typically travel during the night and avoid established trails and popular destinations. These smuggling organizations, whether it be contraband or human smuggling, for the most part, they're in it for the money. If you get caught, that costs you money. If you're trying to keep a low profile and remain somewhat clandestine, then, yeah, you're going to stay away from, from visitors and you're going to stay away from the what we call the developed areas, so campgrounds, visitor centers, big parking lots. And again, the, the numbers do support that from places like Oregon Pipe, is that the vast majority of smuggling incidents or cross-border illegal activity occurs outside of those developed areas. And attacks such as that on Karen Gonzalez are extremely rare. Here's Special Agent Smith. I'm trying to think if I can remember a single case of where a, a private citizen visiting a national park stumbled into some sort of criminal activity and as a result something bad happened to them. And I, off the top of my head, I can't think of um, any of those kind of wrong place, wrong time type situations. Here's Sergeant Parker. Anything's possible, but you know, for the most part, uh, in our contacts with the mules and the groups, they're not armed. Uh, usually they refrain from any type of uh, violence because they know that if they do, it really shuts down their operations because a lot of law enforcement attention gets focused on the, into that area. In most cases, it's undocumented migrants that lose their lives attempting to cross the border. And since the year 2000, the medical examiner's office in Tucson has received about 3,000 human remains found in the deserts of southeast Arizona believed to belong to migrants. And we have to keep in mind that, unlike other parks like Oregon Pipe National Monument or Big Bend, the Chiricahuas are neither right along the border nor are they close to a major highway, meaning they're not at all convenient for an illegal cross-border operation. Is it possible for a private citizen such as Jeanette Castrion or Larry Cosden to be walking through a park, minding their own business, to run into a drug smuggling organization and be killed as a result? Yes, but according to the experts, it's not likely to happen. Also not a likely one, but there is another possibility. They could have crossed paths with a serial killer. On a chalkboard in their shared apartment, Meredith Emerson left a note for her roommate. Taking Ella hiking, hope you had fun, she wrote, closing the message with a smiley face. It was New Year's Day of 2008 when they set off on that hike on Blood Mountain in the Georgia wilderness. And as the hours stretched into days without the return of Meredith and her beloved dog Ella, concern had grown into panic. A month earlier and just over 400 miles away, Cheryl Dunlap was last seen smiling warmly over the pages of her book at a passerby as she sat near the still waters of Leon Sinks in Florida's Apalachicola National Forest. When she didn't attend church services the following morning and was absent from the Sunday school class she taught, those who knew Cheryl were immediately gripped with worry. And then there was John and Irene Bryant. Married for almost 60 years and with a mutual love for nature, they set off on a hike together one October day in 2007, as they'd done so many times before. 
This trip, however, through the Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina would be their last. Meredith, Cheryl, John, and Irene, although separated by distance in circumstance, had ultimately crossed paths with the same man out there in their respective woods. Gary Michael Hilton, already a con man and drifter, he'd become a murderer now too, by way of opportunity. With robbery being his primary motivation, Hilton's victims were similar only in that they appeared vulnerable and found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I do say appeared vulnerable with purpose. Meredith Emerson was a blue belt in martial arts, and in Hilton's own words, she fought like hell. As with others, Hilton stole Meredith's ATM card, and her courage and quick thinking pushed that first domino that would ultimately lead to his capture. Meredith repeatedly and over the course of four days gave Hilton the wrong PIN number in an effort to trigger security alerts for their bank. Hilton gave his own account of this in an interview with detectives. I hadn't I'd gotten any money off her. <laughs> you know, I had gotten a dime. I spent money on her. I had $45 to my name and I dug spent $30 of it driving all over North Georgia trying to work her ADM card on the bogus number she gave me. I've lost money on that deal. The physical fight Meredith put up initially led to one of the most notable clues to Hilton's identity. The scene of their struggle included a discarded extendable police-style baton. When this information was released to the public, John Tabor, who'd previously employed Hilton and happened to be watching the news, knew he must be their suspect and called in the tip that helped police identify him. He's the one that called him to begin with. He had he had already seen that on TV and, and called him and said it was me. He's the one that the first one that turned me in, apparently. Although I don't worry about that because if it wasn't Tabor, it would have been someone else within a couple of days. There's too many law enforcement officers in North Georgia, four service officers that know I carry a bat, an expanding bat, that are very familiar with me. The interview you heard was one he agreed to as part of a plea deal. When Tabor's tip led to Hilton's identification, his picture was widely circulated, and when he pulled into a Georgia gas station and began emptying the contents of his van into a dumpster, a passerby recognized him and called 911. Okay, I have 911. What's the exact location? I, I have the, uh, the person of interest in the missing woman case is at this uh, Chevron gas station on Ashford Dunwoody. Chevron gas station at Ashford Dunwoody? Yeah. You said the van is there? The van is here. The dog is here, the red dog. And I saw the man's face, and I've been watching the news, and I know it's him. I know it's him. He's got a green... Uh, long sweatshirt, and he's wearing a hat, and he's emptying all this stuff out of his van. Pillows and a blanket, and it looks like he's got a sleeping bag right now. Taking it all to the trash. It's definitely looking around like he's as guilty as sin. Blood evidence found in Hilton's van was a match to Meredith Emerson. In exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table, Hilton pleaded guilty to Meredith's murder and led police to her body. His confession would reveal that she would fight and outwit him until January 4, 2008, when his frustration at being unable to access her bank account culminated in her brutal bludgeoning and subsequent beheading. The details of her murder rang familiar to detectives in Florida. By this time, ATM surveillance video showing a man in a mask using Cheryl Dunlap's debit card 
had surfaced and her body had been found and identified. Suspicions of his involvement in the Bryant's murders were soon confirmed as well through DNA evidence, and Gary Michael Hilton would ultimately plead or be found guilty of all four murders. At first glance, these disappearances seem unconnected. They were in different states, and the victims' descriptions ranged widely. Hilton was in his 60s when he bludgeoned Irene Bryant to death on the side of Yellow Gap Road, and he insists that she was his first. Could that really be true? How many others went hiking and vanished because they also met Gary Michael Hilton, when he was perhaps low on cash? And how many other killers looked to the forest and saw the same thing he did? An opportunity. What if Jeanette and Larry ran into an individual like Gary Michael Hilton? I've asked myself that so many times. Coming up next on The Labyrinth. And they looked at that and they thought, is that a bear's bone? Because there are bears not lying up there. If you were to look at the photograph of the braid of hair and look at the picture of Janet with her hair, they look the same. <laughs> 